Hey, I'm Pastor Joel, and I just want to say thank you for downloading or streaming this message today. My prayer for you is that you're blessed by the content that you hear. As a church, our desire is to make disciples of Jesus, and we do that by helping people to trust and follow Him in every aspect of their daily life. So if this is something that blesses you, we just hope that you'll feel free to share this with others so that they might be encouraged and challenged by it as well. Good to see you. Hope you're already having a great day today. Glad you're here. If you have your Bibles, turn with us to Revelation chapter 19. Celebrate God's truth. That was good. Man, that was way better than the first service. They had like Easter hangover something. I don't know, but you guys killed it right there. So that's good. Uh, if you're a guest of ours and we're like, what just happened? Um, we love to celebrate God's word. We believe it is powerful. We believe it's life-changing. We believe that it is true and it's from God himself to us. And so we celebrate that when we, uh, when we look at it. Um, I was not supposed to be preaching today. If you were here for Easter, I told you that it would be someone else. And uh, then I got a text message at midnight last night, around midnight, and said, hey man, I am sick and I can't be there. Can you go? And it was like, yeah, it's fine. <laughs> Pastors always have something to preach on. And so small lie. But anyway, um, so we are going to uh, take a little bit of a detour from my original plan and uh, going to look today at the end of chapter 19 in the book of Revelation. Uh, my plan originally was last next week, we we're going to hit 19, the end of 19 and then 20, and then 21 the next week and 22 the week after that. But today we're going to hit the end of 19, next week we'll do 20, then 21, then 22, and then we're done with the book of Revelation, uh, which is pretty crazy. We have been doing this for a while now, and uh, it's been the longest stretch of time that I've preached through a specific book. And uh, for some of you, maybe it's been a long stretch as well. Uh, but you can take some solace in this fact. I was on Twitter this week and uh, I follow a guy on Twitter. It's kind of a parody account that pastors follow. And it's a guy called, um, uh, his, his Twitter is uh, at no respect, rev no respect. And it's uh, the unappreciated pastor is uh, what his Twitter handle is. And so uh, he was asking people on Twitter, hey, what are you preaching on for Easter? This was last week. And so I was curious just to go, what are guys preaching on? What passages are they using? Or what's their topic going to be or their title uh, around the resurrection of Jesus and those kinds of things? And, and one guy, as I was scrolling through, one guy had responded and said, well, I'm going to be where I would have been this week anyway. Uh, I would have been in Luke chapter 17, and that's what I'm going to preach on this Sunday. And he said, it will be the 126th message in the series we've been going through in the book of Luke. <laughs> I was like, that is a lot of dedication to the book of Luke right there. I think that's like four plus years. And so, I'm not very good at math, but that's a lot of numbers, uh, 126 weeks. And so, um, so anyway, you can be thankful 
that we've not gone that long in this book, but we will start to wrap up this series and get to the end of this. And here's one of the things that I want you to know about for next week. When you come next week, we're going to be handing out some cards that will give you a chance to ask questions about the book of Revelation. Maybe some things that we have discussed in this study, maybe some things that you think differently about, maybe some things that uh, didn't get talked about as much as you would have liked to. And so you'd like us to dive into that a little bit more. We're going to have a, a small panel of people uh, up here on Memorial Day weekend, and we're just going to field your questions over the next three Sundays. We're going to take those ahead of time. You can write out your questions, submit them to us. We're going to look over them, get ready for answering those. And then on that Memorial Day weekend, we're going to try to answer as many of those questions as we can. And whatever we don't get to, we'll try to find another way to answer some of those questions. So we're going to put the ball back in your court as we end our uh, excuse me, our Revelation series. So start thinking about what questions do you still have? Is there anything that you've been curious about that maybe we didn't talk enough about or that you just have a different viewpoint than I've expressed and how maybe some other people think about some of those things? So that's what I would encourage you to do. But until then, let's check this passage of Scripture out. In Revelation chapter 19, start in verse 11. I believe the passage is in your app. There will not be notes to follow along with today, unfortunately. Um, but, uh, but you can follow along on the app just to read if you need to do that. So John John writes and says, I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. And with justice he judges and wages war. Verse 12, his eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. And he has a name written on him that no one but he himself knows. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. And coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword which, uh, with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So let's stop there for just a moment. And so we've been going through this teaching series, and obviously in the book of Revelation, we could easily get lost in some things that are, well, let's think about the future and what hasn't happened yet, and what's God telling us is going to happen, and what are the weird details of some of the Revelation story as it unfolds, and we could easily get lost and wrapped up in some of those things that really, honestly, no one knows exactly how things are going to play out other than God himself. Uh, and yet, we have to remember as we kind of get to the conclusion of this book, that the title of the book is The Revelation of Jesus Christ. The whole idea of what we've been studying over these last several months is Jesus. We want to find out how he reveals himself to his church, to us, and about himself for the future. And so everything we've been doing has been to get a better glimpse, a better look at who Jesus is. That's what we want to know. We don't want to get caught up going, well, what about these plagues and what about these trumpet judgments and what about these things and how's this going to work and is there a millennial kingdom that's a literal thousand years and does the church rapture out before all these things happen or after or never or what, you know, we could get really lost in those details. And yet the truth is, is that throughout this book, what we're supposed to find is Jesus. He's the center uh, character of the whole book. And so what we find this morning as we draw nearer to the end in Revelation chapter 19 is John seeing another view of Jesus and telling us more about him. And he starts out in verse 11, it says, I saw heaven standing open and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. And with justice, he judges and he wages war. 
And so the first thing that I would want us to think about this morning is this, that as Jesus returns, he comes back as a mighty warrior, not a docile lamb. When we see Jesus in the New Testament, he's born into the world as a baby, innocent and pure, small, unassuming, no power to him, nothing that would draw people to himself. He's just an infant. And he comes onto the scene in this lamb-like quality, just born into that into our world in that way. And then as Jesus grows up, we hear more about him, that he, he is the, the lamb who's come to take away the sins of the world. That's how John describes him, John the Baptist. And then we hear from even prophets in the Old Testament that point to Jesus and, and they say what we talked about last week for Easter. As the lamb who stands before his shearers is silent, so is the Messiah who stands before those who will kill him. He's led away like a sheep to be slaughtered. And so we find Jesus discussed and talked about in his first coming as this docile, peaceful lamb. And yet that's the Easter story. The story of Revelation and the story of the end is his return, his second coming. And what we're going to find there and what we're going to look at today is that this battle called Armageddon takes place. And when Armageddon happens, Jesus stands in absolute power and with absolute authority. And he is no longer the lamb. He is the lion that's on the prowl. He is the one who is coming to rule and to reign over all of human history. And he is going to bring the nations under his leadership. And so what we find of Jesus in this moment is that he is now coming back as a lion on the prowl. In verse 11 it says, with justice he judges and he wages war. So for anyone who feels that it's unfair for Jesus to judge so harshly, and some of the things that we've looked at over the last several weeks about the judgments of Jesus, or if, you're, if it's your opinion that Jesus uh, is that he's supposed to be all about love and acceptance and, and just forgiving everybody and letting anybody do whatever they want to, I think it's important for us to remember that he's waited for thousands of years to give people a chance to turn to him in relationship. And that when we look at passages like this, where everyone is ultimately and finally destroyed, who stands against Jesus, we go, How fair? that's not fair. They, they should have been given a chance. They have been given a chance. The world is being given a chance. The New Testament talks in, about Jesus uh, waiting to return. It's been 2,000 plus years now since Jesus died on the cross, rose again, and ascended to heaven where he sits today at the Father's right hand, waiting for the Father to send him back for his church. And in that moment, we're told that he's not slow in keeping his promises. Some of us understand slowness, but he's patient with us, wanting no one to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Jesus waits so that more and more people will hear the gospel, so that more and more people will have an opportunity to respond. He's not slow in keeping his promises. He's patient. Uh, there's a quote by a theologian, last name is Walward, and he says this, there is nothing more inflexible than divine judgment where grace has been spurned. And so what John sees in this last part of the book of Revelation is with Jesus coming back to judge with justice and to wage war against his enemies, it's that he is inflexible in this moment because his grace has been ultimately spurned and there is no more turning back, that he is going to come to bring an end to all those who would seek to be his enemies and rule over him. He is going to show them that he is the final authority, that he is God. So I want you to contrast this second coming of Jesus here with the first arrival that's described in John chapter one, verses 11 through 14. Uh, it just simply says this, John writes in his gospel, he came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to those who did receive him, 
To those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children not born of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh and he made his dwelling among us. We've seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. And so when Jesus came the first time, John says he was the word made flesh. And when he came, he was full of grace. He was full of truth. He was extending the invitation to join him, to be a part of his family, to have your sins forgiven, to let him take your place and pay the punishment for your sin that you and I deserve to pay, but that he's kind enough to do for us. He came full of grace. He came full of truth. When he comes the second time, it's not to extend grace. It's to bring war. He's coming to judge the inhabitants of the earth. And so we need to prepare ourselves for that moment. Then I want you to see some things that John describes Jesus as, some ways he describes him in, in Revelation chapter 19. He says his eyes are like blazing fire. In other words, he's pure, he's holy, he sees everything. He has eyes that gaze into the hearts of man and he sees our sinfulness, he sees our wickedness. He knows how to judge people's motives, their actions, their thoughts, and their heart because he sees it all. And so one of the things that I know we wrestle with in life is that sin tends to live in the dark places of our lives, in the dark places of our hearts. That's where sin really grows. That's where it takes hold of us and where it gets itself entangled in our lives and it works its way out of us. And we're so trapped in sin because we keep things in the dark. And it's because we keep things in the dark that we often allow sin to grow and continue and multiply and move forward. And what Jesus wants to do and what he came for is to bring light to the darkness because we're told that darkness can't overcome his light. And so to say that Jesus has eyes burning like fires, to say that he looks into our souls, he looks into our lives, he knows where the dark places are, he knows where the sin is, and his desire is to burn that out of us to bring to light all of our sin, all of our mess, all of our mistakes, all of our greed, our animosity, our hatred, our wickedness, our envy, our murderous thoughts and attitudes. He says, I wanna peer directly into your soul and I wanna bring light to that darkness and I wanna drive everything that's in you that's dark out so that you can live the Christ life and I can live through you. That's what Jesus desires to do. So John says, when he comes, he sees everything. And he knows how to judge rightly because he knows where the sin is. And let me tell you something. It's better to let Jesus be the surgeon in your life now and remove that darkness and cut deep into you and pull those things out now than for him to show up on this day of judgment and find you living opposed to him with sin in your heart and to say, there's no more chance for you to repent. This is the day of reconciliation. This is the day of judgment. Let God do that work in you now. It's much less painful to go through the surgery of Jesus gazing into your life, exposing sin and pulling it out in this moment than to wait and to have him come and judge because of your sins when he returns. So the first thing we see is that he's got these eyes like blazing fire. The second thing John tells us is that on his head are many crowns and he doesn't give a number to it. It's just many crowns, multiple crowns, innumerable perhaps crowns. John's trying to describe this, uh, this uh, illustration for us or, or this object for us to say that when Jesus comes, he has all power and all authority. The word that's used there in the Greek is diadems. And it's a, a crown of authority, of splendor, of power. 
There are other types of crowns in Scripture. One type of crown is the crown of the victor, or the, the victor's crown that you would win if you won an Olympic-type game. Win the race, get a crown. It would be an olive branch kind of thing on your head. Those were the crowns. He's saying when Jesus comes, he has many crowns, and they're the diadems of royalty, of authority, of power. He's coming to rule and to reign. And you contrast that with what John has told us about the Antichrist, the beast, and we've seen consistently through the book of Revelation that the beast has seven heads and ten horns with ten crowns. Right? And so when John talks about this Antichrist figure who's going to lead the world astray, he says this guy has some level of power and authority. It looks like a lot. Ten crowns is a lot. But when Jesus comes, he has many crowns. Many, many crowns that, that crown his head with splendor, with royalty, with regal. And so he says he comes to rule and to reign. In that way, he has absolute authority. Then look back at the text, and I want us to see what happens next because John is going to continually focus and repeat something in this passage where he just talks about the name that's associated with Jesus. So in verse 12, it says he has eyes like blazing fire. On his head are many crowns, and he has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He's dressed in a robe dipped in blood. And his name is the word of God. Then if you skip down to verse 16, it says on his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So two different times he says it's written on Jesus, his name. Don't know how you feel about tattoos, but maybe this is Jesus with some tattoos. I don't know. Uh, but that's what he just says. Some of you are like, no, no, tattoos, that's out. We don't do that in church. That's not Christian. Well, I mean, Jesus has it written on himself twice. So you do what you want to with that. But he goes, his name is written on him. There's this unknown name. We don't know. It's his way. Only he knows how he wants to reveal himself in that. And then he says, and then his name is the word of God. He is the word made flesh. John tells us in his gospel, John chapter one, verse one, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. Right? And so when he talks about Jesus, he associates him with his word. And so now in Revelation, he says, Jesus is the word. He's made flesh. He is the living embodiment of the word of God. Anytime we talk about God's name, we always associate it with his character. This is who God is. This is what he's like. Jesus came to show us as the word who God is and what he's like to the fullest extent. Jesus even said about himself, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I and the Father are one. We're the same. My character is the Father's character. My nature is the Father's nature. My name is the Father's name and vice versa. And so we see in Jesus that he is the name. And then finally on his thigh is the name King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So he is over everything. There's no king that's not under him. There's no Lord that's not under him. And so when we focus on this idea of the name, it makes me think about Psalm chapter 138, verse 2, uh, verses 1 and 2. Psalm 138 says, I will praise you, Lord, with all my heart. Before the gods, I will sing your praise. I will bow down toward your holy temple and will praise your name for your unfailing love and your faithfulness. For you have so exalted your solemn decree that it surpasses your fame. An earlier translation or an earlier version of the New International Version says, you've exalted above all things your name and your word. If you go, what does God hold high? He holds high his name. He holds high his word. And he reveals, him, excuse me, he reveals himself to us in those things. 
that his name is held high, it's exalted. His word is held high and exalted. And in Jesus, the name of God is the word of God. And so when he comes, he comes to reveal himself. Look back in Revelation chapter 19, verses 15 and 16. You'll see another description of Jesus here. It says, It's coming out of his mouth as a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. And so when we see this, I don't know how many pictures or paintings of Jesus you've seen. No pictures, there's no pictures of Jesus, but paintings of Jesus that you've seen. That'd be awesome, wouldn't it? Like Polaroids of Jesus, good. Um, But paintings of Jesus, I don't know if you've ever seen one where he's got a sword coming out of his mouth. That would be an interesting painting, wouldn't it? And yet multiple times in the book of Revelation, that's how John describes Jesus. When I saw him, he came and he had a double-edged sword coming out of his mouth with which he used to kill his enemies. Well, that is pretty severe. What is this sword? And it's literally the word of God. It doesn't mean that Jesus walks around with a double-bladed sword out of his mouth, striking people down with it. The word of God is associated with a sword in scripture. And so when he says the sword coming out of his mouth, he simply means that the word of God, as God speaks, as Jesus speaks, the same way that he spoke creation into existence, Jesus is the agent of creation that God used to bring creation to happen. He says, without him, nothing was made that was been made, but through him, all things have been made. So as Jesus spoke creation into existence, as his word came bursting out of his mouth and light flew onto the scene and stars burst forth in their glory and planets and solar systems and everything else came out of the mouth of Jesus as he spoke creation, the same will happen in the book of Revelation as he speaks destruction over his enemies. He will carry it like a sword and it'll be for the purpose of destruction. And so when we see this, we also see that it's not only a sword, but he will rule them with an iron scepter. In Psalm chapter 2, David, who's writing about some things in his current situation, but also some things future that I believe tie in very well here. Psalm chapter 2, verse 1 says, Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. And that's exactly what's going to happen at the Battle of Armageddon. This is exactly what's going to take place in these end moments where Jesus returns and the armies of the earth have gathered together to war against God. Their whole plan is to say, we don't want to be ruled by God. We want to be our own authority. We like the dragon. We like the beast. We like the false prophet. Let's follow them. Let's create our own kingdom. Let's throw off the shackles and the chains of God and how he imposes himself on us. We don't want him. We're going to rebel against him. And as all of these people join together and war against God, Verse four says, the one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath saying, I've installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. I will proclaim the Lord's decree. This is David. I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, you're my son. Today I've become your father. Ask me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth, your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron or a scepter of iron. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling. Kiss his son or he will be angry and your way will lead to your destruction. For his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. And so Jesus doesn't just have a sword in his mouth. He has this iron scepter and it's a symbol of ruling. It's a way of saying a king who holds the iron scepter 
is the one who's in charge. He sits on the throne. And the nations of the earth that want to rebel against him, he comes in absolute power to fight them off and to destroy them. When we get back into Revelation chapter 19, in verses 17 through 21, we see that the opposition to Jesus has catastrophic results. If you'll go back and read this, we haven't seen this yet, but here's what happens when the nations conspire and when they come together. Verse 17 says, And I saw an angel standing in the sun who cried in a loud voice to all the birds flying in midair, Come, gather together for the great supper of God, so that you may eat the flesh of kings, generals, and the mighty of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, great and small. Then I saw the beast and his kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to wage war against the rider on the horse and his army. But the beast was captured and with it the false prophet who had performed the signs on its behalf. With these signs, he had deluded those who had received the mark of the beast and worshiped its image. The two of them were thrown into the fiery lake of burning sulfur alive. The rest were killed with the sword coming out of the mouth of the rider of the horse and all the birds gorged themselves on their flesh. And when we think back to Revelation chapter 14 and Revelation chapter 16, we were given snapshots by John from Jesus, these images of showing what the end battle would look like. And we're told that when in John chapter or in Revelation chapter 14, we're told that when Jesus returns and the armies battle against him, he'll trample them like grapes in a wine press, and the blood will flow through the city streets up to the horse's bridle. We talked about some of those things, maybe not being so literal, but figurative in a sense. If you've missed some of our sermon series, I'd love for you to go back and catch up on that and see what we talked about there. In Revelation chapter 16, we saw that when the seventh or the sixth trumpet judgment was sounded, that when the trumpet was sounded, the Euphrates River dries up, making a path for the armies of the earth to come to the battle of Armageddon, to war against God. He makes a way for them to come and fight against him. And yet there's ultimate destruction that's in that. So we've seen those snapshots. Now in chapter 19, we get the actual decision, the actual battle. And so this is a battle that books are written about, that movies are written about, that television series are written about. Everybody has this idea of what Revelation and what the Battle of Armageddon is going to be like. And it's always portrayed as like it's kind of a toss-up. It's good and evil, and we're pretty close and maybe the forces of evil will pull it out, and maybe God will pull it out, but it's going to be this crazy battle, and there's going to be all kinds of losses on both sides, and it's going to be terrible and horrific, but it's, it's really close. That's how most of our world portrays this. And yet the truth of it is, the only way you can have that opinion is if, A, you haven't read the book of Revelation, or B, you don't believe it. Because what John tells us here is that when Jesus returns and the armies of the world gather against him, that he speaks over them, and it's done. There is no battle. It should be called like the gathering at Armageddon. (laughs) Because there is no battle. There is just loss on one side. And so when you see this, and as it plays out, Jesus wins. And it's not close. He is not sitting in heaven waiting for this battle going, oh my gosh, I hope we've prepared our armies enough and I really hope there's enough power to do this and horsepower going and I hope I've got my stuff in a row. God is not concerned about the battle of Armageddon. (laughs) He's not. If you'll notice, it says that the, the Antichrist, the beast and the false prophet, they gather their forces together and Jesus shows up. Actually, Jesus doesn't even show up in this moment. John says, I saw an angel standing in the sun 
which I don't know if you've ever looked into the sun or not. Don't. But if you ever have, it's hard to see anything in the sun unless there's something brighter than the sun in front of the sun. And John says, I looked up and there was this angel standing in the sun with this radiance and this brilliance to it. And this angel just comes and he says, when the battle starts, it's over. And he gathers the beast and he gathers the false prophet and he throws them alive into the burning lake of sulfur. There's, there's no battle here, people. There's nothing to be afraid of if you're a follower of Christ in this moment. But how do you think the armies of the earth showed up for the battlefield? I think when they come, they're in full gear, right? It's tanks and it's planes and it's rockets and they're in tactical gear and everybody's got on their armor. And if there's robots by that point in time, maybe that's gonna happen. Like, I don't know what this is gonna look like, but everybody's bringing their best stuff. But did you notice how Jesus and his army shows up for the battle? Just go back and check this out, verse 14. It says, the armies of heaven were following Jesus, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Isn't that amazing? The armies of the earth are going to show up for this battle ready to go to war. And we're going to show up being like, put on my Sunday best. How's this clean garment look to you? Glowing white. Yeah, I mean, like, this is what it's going to be like. Because there's, there's nothing we're going to do in this battle. We're just going to be following Jesus and going, you got this, man. Go for it. We're here in our Sunday best, ready to cheer you on. And so there's no fight on our part. It's a one-sided affair, and the people of God don't even have to engage. And so we see this angel standing in the sun, and again, he calls to the birds to come and get their fill of the flesh of men and animals, and he calls it the great supper of God. Now, this is before the battle ever happens. John says, I saw an angel in the sun. He calls the birds of the earth together and goes, there's about to be a death. You guys should come because it's going to be a giant banquet for you birds. Like, this is like nothing we've ever seen before. This is a lot like taunting your opponent before you do something because you know you're going to win. Uh, it reminds me of a story from, uh, I love the NBA. I'm watching the NBA playoffs right now. I was reminded of a story with Larry Bird uh, when he was in the prime of his career. And uh, he was playing a game against, I think, the New York Knicks. And they're playing, Xavier McDaniel's been guarding Larry Bird the whole game. And Bird, at the end of the game, it's, it's a one-point game. The Celtics are losing. They've got the ball out of bounds, three seconds left. Larry Bird comes out of a timeout where they drew up the play, walks over to Xavier McDaniel, who's been guarding him, and goes, hey, man, here's what we're going to do. There's going to be a screen set for me. I'm going to go around this screen to the sideline. He's going to inbound the ball to me. I'm going to shoot a three in your face. It's going to go in, and we're going to win the game. He told him to play. I don't know if you're into coaching or sports, but that's probably not a good thing to do. You don't tell the opponents what you're going to do, unless you're Larry Stinking Bird. <laughs> the whistle sounds, the guy hands the ball, inbounds play, screen for Bird, goes over the top, inbounds pass to the sideline, pull up three, nothing but net. Drains it right in the guy's face. Ball game. Man, that's taunting someone, right? And this is what the angel's doing. Hey, you guys, come on. The battle's about to start, and there's going to be carnage, birds. You're, you're going to want to get in on this. It's the great banquet of God is what he calls it, the supper, the great supper of God. Now, if you contrast that with something that takes place earlier in chapter 19, in verse 9, you see the angel say to John, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, these are the true words of God. 
And so there's this battle that's going to take place. And in the end of the battle, there's a great supper of God for those who are destroyed. But at the wedding supper of the Lamb, we want to be invited to that. Right, so early in this series, as we talked through some things, one of the questions that we asked that people ask all the time from different perspectives is, man, you know what? Heaven sounds really great to a certain extent. Like eternity in heaven, great, way better than eternity in hell. I like that part. But the whole idea of me thinking maybe heaven, just maybe, I don't know if I've got my theology right here, but maybe, just maybe, heaven is going to be me sitting wearing a toga on a cloud with a harp for all of eternity, strumming a harp and singing songs. Is that heaven? Because like, I don't want to go to hell, but that, mm, I don't no, that doesn't sound great. And unfortunately, that's the view a lot of us have of heaven. It's, going, it's just going to be riding a cloud, strumming a harp, singing songs. I don't even like music all that much, but I guess I'll do that for the rest of time. And that's where we find ourselves, so many people. But here's what I think of. When we think of heaven, we shouldn't think of it like that. The first thing we get to do is share in the wedding supper of the Lamb. That we're invited to this feast, the wedding supper of the Lamb. That kind of reminds me of something from the Old Testament in the book of Esther. At the beginning of the book, King Xerxes, who's over the whole world at that point in time, he holds a banquet to celebrate his greatness and to show the vast supremacy of his kingdom. And the banquet lasts for 168 days. No, 180 days, excuse me, 180 days. That's quite a banquet. And then to celebrate how great the banquet was, do you know what he did at the end of the banquet? He threw another banquet for another seven days. You have some serious pride at this point, right? But that's what's going on. He throws this 180-day banquet. He ends and he goes, you know, it'll be a great way to wrap this up. Another banquet. Let's do that. Seven days. Then you kind of move forward and you look at some things in, in Israelite culture. And when they celebrated a wedding, their wedding celebration was a week. You would be invited to the wedding for a week at a time. This is why when Jesus shows up for the wedding in Cana, they ran out of wine because the party had been going for a week. Yeah, they were out. It was over. You've got to take out a whole vacation week to go to a wedding. And so this is what the context is. And so then we start thinking about that and go, heaven, I mean, what's heaven going to be like? The first invitation we get is the wedding supper. It's a wedding with the lamb. It's where God unites us as his people to his son, Jesus, and brings us together for all of time. And he goes, now let's take this into account and say what else scripture talks about. To God... A day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. Translation, if the wedding supper of the Lamb is a week, and to God, a day is like a thousand years, then the first thing we're going to do is spend 7,000 years at a banquet that God has prepared for us. You, know, you guys just want to hang out and celebrate? Because I'm ready. Like, I've got the banquet ready. We're not going to run out of wine. Even if we did, Jesus makes stuff like that from water, so good. Like we are ready to celebrate and it's the wedding supper of the lamb. But then when you look at that and you go, that's what we're invited to. The opposite of it is the great dinner of God. And that's the one that the angel invites the birds to come to. And he goes, the birds are going to come and they're going to eat the flesh of the kings of the earth and the animals of the earth and the rulers and the armies and they're just going to take everything that's been destroyed and it's going to be a banquet for birds. So when you think about that, you've got to ask yourself a question. You go, which one of those banquets do I want to be at? One of them you get to eat. One of them you get to be eaten. 
And I'm just telling you, when you put these stark contrasts together that chapters 19 and 16 and 14 and the things that we see, the contrast of the holiness and the glory and the majesty of God and the evil of the enemy and the empire of Satan, you want to be with God. You want to be on the side of Jesus when this all comes down. And the great thing is, is that the invitation is there for you. You're invited, but you have to accept the invitation. My wife and I last night got invited to a great birthday party, a friend of ours that turned 40. They had it in this awesome place, beautiful scenery, great meal, great food. We had been invited, but the only reason we really got to go was because we accepted the invitation. We could have been invited and missed it by not accepting. And the same thing is true for us in this world. That as you think about where you want to spend eternity, you need to understand you've been invited to join God's kingdom. But you have to ask yourself, have you accepted the invitation? And if not, what are you waiting on? Jesus has made the way possible for you to be able to escape the sin of this world, the brokenness of this world, and to have life with him forever. Accept his invitation. Take that and be blessed by it. Jesus is inviting you to be a part of the kingdom for his celebration. Thanks so much for checking out our message today. We hope you are challenged and blessed by it. We want to invite you to come and worship with us in person if you live in the Tri-Cities area. We meet on Sunday mornings at 9 and 1045 a.m. at One Fellowship Point in Kingsport, Tennessee. You can also get more information about us from our website or our mobile app. Have a great day.